The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. He's kind of praising Biden as a way of sort of praising himself. Because if he talks it down too much, then why did he bother showing up, right? You know, kind of, it has to be for both domestic audiences to show he, Putin, still got it. This was a worthy meeting for him. And also internationally, because like the United States, Putin's also looking over his shoulder at China. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 18th, 2021. President Biden met with President Putin in Geneva on Wednesday. There was a lot of press. Some people are even calling it a media circus. There were dueling press conferences. Both presidents got a little grouchy. Both presidents had testy moments with the press. And the whole thing was pretty different from the last time Putin met with a U.S. president, which was in Helsinki with Donald Trump. We got together the ideal panel to talk through the Putin-Biden summit Before a Lawfare Live audience, Fiona Hill and Alex Vindman, both formerly of the National Security Council, Alina Polyakova of the Center for European Policy Analysis, and former Estonian President Tomas Ilves, took live audience questions and questions from me and chewed over whether this was a win for Putin, a win for Biden, an overblown nothing burger of a get-to-know-you session or something else, and what it says about where U.S.-Russia relations are heading. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 18th. Putin and Biden meet in Geneva. Fiona, get us started. What were your macro impressions of the summit yesterday, as well as the respective comments on the summit, both from the president of Russia and from the president of the United States? Well, look, I think this is this went as well as could have been anticipated, which in itself is something of a relief, you know, having thought about things in the past. And I saw Alex's uh, piece in the, the paper, you know, referring back to previous summits, you know, for example. I think that, you know, there were more expectations in the media and the hype around it than, you know, were kind of realistic from anybody who's ever done one of these. And, you know, I'm sure that um, Thomas, having been president of Estonia, you know, when you had your own summits, you know, you know how much of a lot of these things is orchestrated, that, you know, a lot of substantive discussion gets done behind the scenes by various teams. But at the actual event itself, you know, not a lot might happen unless it's been teed up you know, for some outcome. And that was certainly not the case for the Geneva summit. This was more about actually having the meeting, getting over that hurdle, and then moving on. 
So I think what's going to be significant is whether there are an, an, an additional set of meetings, what the content of these are. Is it strategic stability and arms control? Is it about cyber? And in what format is that? You know, what is this issue about prisoner exchange? And I think we should talk about that because that has some red flags from my perspective, certainly. And I think that, you know, we also need to be looking about if there are as announcement of other meetings, be it by or between Lavrov and Blinken, for example, or uh, let's say Shoigu and Austin. I mean, that would be quite significant. And Alex can talk to this uh, about the um, defence minister meeting, you know, beyond what is already a long established channel between uh, General Milley and General Gerasimov. Uh, you know, that would also be um, something we should pay close attention to, to how the Russians posture and what they talk about and whether that meeting actually happens, you know, whether there's some incident that gets in the way. I think the press conferences, while Putin behaved like Putin, I think, you know, what's been interesting, you know, since then is his sort of depiction of Biden and, you know, the kind of complimentary things that he appears to be saying. But I think we should kind of pass that one as well. Putin was you know, incredibly offhand and dispassionate and matter of fact and, you know, seemingly bored by the whole kind of press conference, nothing to look at here. But of course, you know, he got very defensive, you know, about it. And I thought Biden, you know, had actually comported himself pretty well until the very last moment when he had that rather very defensive exchange uh, with uh, the CNN correspondent. Although, you know, actually, he apologised for that later on the tarmac before getting on Air Force One. And of course, what was he defensive about or irritated about was this actual idea that there should be some massive immediate change of behaviour by the Russians because they've had that meeting, which is preposterous and kind of ridiculous. But, you know, part of our problem is dealing with the media and all the interpretations about this summit. And I think, you know, all of us may have some debate about whether it was a good idea to have it now, the optics of when it was uh, presented. And, you know, realistically, in this larger sense of a confrontational relationship about, you know, kind of how summits like this function. But I do want to say up front, you know, because there's an inconsistency in people who say that Putin and Biden shouldn't have met. Should we therefore be meeting with Xi? Should we meet with King Jong-un? Should we meet with Iranians at any kind of level? And let's just kind of think about that for a moment. We have a massively confrontational relationship uh, with Russia that is diplomacy as a tool. And I think, you know, a lot of it is about the messaging, the content of the meetings and what happens next. But I'm not one who believes that you should not meet. And we've gone for a very long period of time without having meetings. We cut them off after Crimea. I'm not sure that meeting is a reward. And I'm happy to debate people about this because a lot of it is what happens behind the scenes, not what you just see on the surface. Alex, what are your uh, gestalt impressions of, of the meeting? Is it was it a win for one side, a win for the other? Is that the wrong way to think about it in the first? So, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I did put out some commentary. It was, you know, Twitter threads and a couple of hundred words on the caution or hesitancy around the meeting. But it wasn't about the meeting itself. I think any practitioner or anybody that's been involved in diplomacy will absolutely agree that there has to be this, these types of engagements. It was more about timing and whether this administration was ready and whether this administration had done kind of all that condition setting for a robust agenda. But having really managed an agenda to make it kind of light with limited aims, uh, you know, this idea of uh, adding some stability and predictability to the relationship, it really went off pretty darn well. In a way, I probably 
be more pleased uh, with how it went off. I tend to uh, think about it in the metaphor of a race, not, you know, who puts a score up first on the board, but, you know, where this is likely to end up. And it's, you know, if Putin scored uh, two goals, you know, I would say Biden scored a goal for the time being, but the conditions have been well set for a good kind of, for a victory down the road. Let me pause you right there. When you say Putin scored two goals and Biden scored a goal, how would you describe the two goals right. that Putin scored and what was the goal that Biden scored? Right. Well, so it's it, the, the, the point system is, is, is uh, ideal here in this case. My initial caution was about doing this meeting and giving Putin this PR moment when he's facing significant challenges at home, going into parliamentary elections here in, in late summer. And without having kind of a robust agenda and maybe even some more condition setting, some more kind of signaling about what firm policy uh, stance the U.S. is going to take with regards to Russian uh, aggression. But in reality, I think the, the president has definitely gone further than probably just about anybody, maybe since Reagan, in terms of articulating a significant cost with regards to future aggression against the United States directly especially in the cyber domain. When uh, Fiona alluded to, to the piece I wrote in the New York Times, I had a discussion with him on Thursday night. Friday morning, I sat down and, and basically uh, you know, cranked out about a thousand words thinking that it was basically going to be about where I thought it was going to end up. And then yesterday, after listening to the press conference, I spent a couple, several hours reworking it because there were some surprises. There weren't many surprises in the, in the fact that you know arms control was raised, strategic stability was raised, these are these are cl clearly kind of core issues for uh, democratic administrations, but the other things that the president brought up were really, you know, frankly, maybe more important signals to me. The fact that he raised human rights issues, the, face, the fact that he raised, uh, you know, the democratic agenda, the fact that he uh, laid down a significant marker in a very sophisticated and diplomatic way on cyber. It wasn't a threat. Uh, I've seen this kind of unfold before, uh, where you know a sophisticated policymaker might say, "Well, these are the things that could happen if the Russians, you know, maintain their course." That doesn't come across as a threat. It's just you know laying down a marker on, on what the consequences might be. So, in a lot of ways, I I take some of the criticism, especially from my my old boss um, Fiona and I, our our boss uh, Bolton, as really political kind of maneuvering and discount a lot of the criticism that's coming from Pompeo entirely because. There wasn't really much merit to it, and and frankly, give uh, Biden and his team, uh, who put a lot of work work into this behind the scenes, a lot of credit for how this whole thing went off. Not just the Russia summit, but the NATO component, uh, the EU bilaterals, uh, G7, everything. I think it went off about as well as could be expected, or could be hoped. What do you think, Tomas, from a European perspective? Watching this, you must have your eye on how you would have seen it had you still been in office, and as well, what the dialogue among European leaders today is going to be like. You know, what is that conversation like? Is the, is the America is back rhetoric resonating at all, or is this an example of every U.S. administration comes in and has this delusion that they're going to reset the relationship with Russia. And we've been to this movie many times before. 
Well, first of all, the euphoria that uh, began with G7 uh, continued even more so with uh, the NATO summit and, can, and then even more, or we just continued with the uh, meeting with the European Union leadership. I, I think that uh, people were well, had been, were long convinced that uh, Biden was capable of doing this. And I think uh, saw just that it was a normal thing for for President Biden to meet Putin. Now, personally, and I would have said this if I were discussing this with my colleagues, is that I'm not sure you'd want to call it a summit. I mean, summits to me are things that have been prepared for a long time. The agenda set, you have the points and you're basically you have three or four sticking points that require the big guys to come in and have the finals. OK, you know, you can have that. You give me this. And then you're, you've gotten the whole string of, of agreements or points that have been solved, whereas this was basically an icebreaker for Putin and for President Biden. So I, I think it was overhyped. Uh, and clearly you saw this from the press participation where you had 1,200 journalists going to, to Geneva, whereas where the significant things happened, be it, I mean, G7 accomplished a lot, you know, between taxes and, uh, and then on sort of EU on tech issues and putting aside long, long, even pre-Trump issues on Airbus and Boeing. I mean, all of these, the, we had, there were actually genuine accomplishments during this trip that, I mean, that at least from a European point of view, uh, accomplished a real lot. I mean, this is like the, this was like the paparazzi element of the, uh, of the, of the six day trip uh, for me. I mean, that's where all the, you know, all the, ambulance chasers come out and then and you know i mean even with that um you know with with his slightly snarky comment to a journalist who put words in his mouth he had never said which i would say from my personal experience i get annoyed too if someone says well you said this i go no i didn't you know so, and that was kind of the that was what made it to the press. So I, it was kind of a circus. I don't know, circus is the right word, but this, this, I would relegate it to the Bildzeitung or one of the sort of yellow yellow tabloids in Europe rather than to a serious, serious account of what happened. And yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that everybody, including we sitting who are sitting here, are paying so much attention to this. It was a good meeting. It didn't, it was, we did not have the, uh, you know, we did not need Fiona's uh, current contemporary to go and pull the fire alarm. This is a major step. <laughs> On my own opinion, I mean, my own personal opinion is that I was glad to see probably the first president with a serious foreign policy understanding since H.W. Bush was there. Because I think that, uh, I mean, every president since um, uh George Herbert Walker Bush uh, was uh, basically followed a, a good line. Well, not always a good line, but anyway, fo followed a general line, but himself was not that experienced in foreign affairs. You know, we had the Buddy Boris and Bill show and and we had and then subsequent presidents seeing, you know, souls and other things.
And of course, uh, I'm not sure that uh, you know, Trump's predecessor was really cared at all about foreign policy. So, and then of course we had Trump. I mean, so the bar was so low that uh, I figured, no, I mean, if President Biden could walk, chew gum and leave people uninsulted, this would be a great meeting. Uh, he did far more than that. And I think that this was all viewed with a great sigh of relief by, uh, by all European leaders. What Putin thought, I don't know. I don't, I personally don't think it went that well for him. He didn't come off as being that great a leader there. I mean, or, I mean, I thought he was very defensive. Um, you know, basically, it's not good to lie at these things. And if you look at the kind of lies that he spewed, which everybody realizes is what he said is not true, equating, you know, sort of massive repressions in Russia and what happened to Navalny uh, with January 6th. I don't think that works. Uh, saying he consciously, Navalny consciously left Russia. No, he left in a damn coma, right? I mean, so and to, to justify arresting him. I think that it was a big fail for him for uh, opinion in uh, in Europe, at least. Alina, what are your gestalt impressions? There's a, a subtle difference of opinion here, I think, between uh, Tomas, who says, you know, didn't work that well for Putin, worked really well for, for, for Biden, although the standard was really low because he's the first president since you know, I was a teenager or a young 20-something with uh, foreign policy experience. And Alex, who says kind of single for Biden, double for, for Putin, where are you in this dispute? I, I get to be the referee, which is always fun for me. And I'm going to take the very um, ambiguous position of saying I kind of agree with everyone to a certain extent. Uh, but here, here's what I mean by that. I think one um, in terms of whether this was a real win for Putin. We have to remember that when Putin is making these kinds of speeches, he's really talking to his domestic audience. And that's even more true now than if this had taken place another time. They're looking ahead to the Duma elections in September. Everything is focused on that to make sure it's perfectly controlled and goes off without any surprises, which I'm sure that it will. The Kremlin's gotten very good. Uh, at orchestrating elections um, since Putin has been in power. And so his entire speech, you know, the what about is, I mean, you know, classic Putin, I think to a great extent, um, isn't about addressing the US presence, not about addressing Europe, it's about addressing his uh, population and people at home and showing himself to be, you know, the great world leader, of course. Putin doesn't get a lot of opportunities to have every single media organization in the West from all over the world, cameras all on him. So he needs to use this for his own interest and his own interest, of course, at the end of the day is quite basic. It's to remain in power for as long as possible, most likely. And of course, looking ahead to some of the political instability that we've seen in Russia over the years and not wanting anything to go wrong ahead of the, of the Duma elections. I do agree you know, with what Thomas said about the the way this was presented in advance. And I was one of those people that said, you know, why are we having this meeting? You know, there was nothing was prepared that we heard about. Uh, we didn't get any deliverables at the, at the so-called summit. So of course we should meet with heads of state. Absolutely, I think Fiona's 100% right about that. You know, we've gotten too comfortable 
I think, in the United States was our foreign policy approach in not wanting to meet with those we disagree with. And, you know, we met with Soviet leaders back in those days. There was a dialogue. There was military to military dialogue. We have to have some normalcy, of course, to the relationship on the diplomatic side and the military deconfliction side. But this could have just been a meeting. It didn't have to be this big circus, you know, paparazzi, you know, whatever we want to call it. Um, it didn't have to follow all of the major summits. I understand why that was done by the administration. I think it was smart to meet with the allies first. But wouldn't it have been better if President Biden was able to secure, if the focus on the G7, the NATO, was to secure some sort of allied statement, an agreement, something, uh, whether it be on cyber issues, whether it be an illicit finance, that he could have then brought to the, to the meeting of Putin and said, look, here's where we stand. You know, and if you continue on this path, you don't have to just deal with the United States, you have to deal with the alliance. Um, I think that would have been a strong message to send, but these things weren't prepared in time. So to my mind, I think this could have happened another time. It didn't have to happen now. It didn't have to give Putin the world stage. It completely overshadowed everything that happened in NATO and the G7 uh, because of the media focus on it. But I do think the administration did the right thing just to have the meeting. I think the timing was off. I think we could have done a lot more with it if we had prepared more. All right. I want to defend the media circus for a second and then have uh, Fiona and Alex respond to this defense because they were in government when the events I'm about to talk about happened. The last time there was a summit between the U.S. and Russian presidents, the summit was in Helsinki. It was a self-generating circus given the circumstances in which it took place and what President Trump did at it. With that as background, there is no way that 1,200 journalists are not showing up at this. And the press's reaction is simply a reasonable function of what President Trump led people to expect in U.S.-Russia relations, that it was a, a kind of high drama situation. And so my question, uh, Fiona first and then Alex, is like, given Helsinki, how could this have been anything other than a circus? Well, I'm kind of with Alina <laughs> that, and, and also Thomas as well, that this was overhyped. I'm sorry. I, I, and actually, I, I do wonder, and I was trying to kind of look at it on my phone at the same time. So sorry, this is my phone. I looked a bit distracted for you watching there. Who called it a summit in the first place? Because first of all, going back to Helsinki, we were trying not to call it a summit. I mean, it was Alex's first day on the job. Great start there, Alex. And we'd been trying to call it a working meeting. The Russians were the ones who wanted to call it a summit for all the obvious reasons that we're talking about here, about Putin wanting to have a moment on the world stage. You may recall that uh, Trump had two attempts of having a state visit with the Brits. And, you know, basically Helsinki was preceded by what was actually a working visit, not a state visit to the United Kingdom. But Trump kept trying to call this a state visit because he wanted a state visit. So the point on this is that, you know, presidents and everybody call things what they want to call them for their own purposes. And I, again, I'm not really sure what the administration was calling it. I actually didn't see anything that was suggesting that they were hyping it up as this major summit. There have been meetings prior to this between the two sides. Jake Sullivan went off to meet with Patrushev, not really to kind of prepare a whole raft of points or things for resolution, but at least to sort of tee up a discussion. Because as Thomas says, this was an icebreaker. 
and there's been a lot of ice accumulated, you know, over time. And uh, General Gerasimov and General Milley have been talking. This was a channel that uh, Alex himself worked on when he was in the chairman's office between Dunford and Gerasimov. They've been talking a lot uh, leading up until this point. But there was no expectation anywhere, I don't think, of anything other than the antithesis of the Helsinki meeting. I'm, I'm sorry, but I think that the media were hyping this and everybody else who was watching this. I just wanted to get it over with, um, probably like the people who were sitting inside of the NSC in you know, our previous uh, positions now as well. We frankly want Helsinki over with too. It didn't quite go like that because of the press conference. I'm really glad that uh, Biden and his team decided not to have a joint press conference. I know, again, there's a lot of hype in the media saying, well, that's a breaking with precedence. In actual fact, I mean, lots of times there's not a joint press conference. Uh, leaders go off and ask Thomas about, you know, what did he do? I mean, you usually have a, bre- a joint press conference. You're trying to announce something that, that um, you know, you've agreed on. And, and as Thomas said, there was a lot agreed on for the G7 and for NATO and all of the other uh, meetings uh, that Biden had. I do think that, you know, kind of as Alina and everyone else is saying, the decision to have it tacked on at the end of uh, these other meetings was the decision that really pushed it there to prominence. Because it's, it's, it's Biden's first major European trip and Russia's part of it. And, you know, when you look at Trump, it came in his first meeting with Putin came in Hamburg on the margins of the G20. But his previous, you know, kind of first trips involved Saudi Arabia and, you know, all kinds of, you know, other countries there and was a lot of high drama around that. Trump made everything high drama and made it a big show because he wanted it to be. And Biden was also trying to downplay this one. So, look, there was a lot of hype about it. The media wanted something exciting to happen. They were looking for something exciting to happen. All of us were out there, you know, kind of pressed into commentary. But as uh, Thomas says, this was a pretty modest meeting, an effort to break some ice and an effort to try to kind of get back onto track with discussions about some pretty critical issues. It wasn't an exercise in appeasement. There was no kind of undertakings were made. There was a reissuance of the Gorbachev-Reagan basically declaration on the impermissibility really of um, nuclear uh, war. Bolton had been um, blocking us, the United States, from issuing that with the Russians before because he thought, why restate what Gorbachev and Reagan have already said? (laughs) You know, this is kind of silly to kind of reissue this because the Russians wanted this reissuing again in the past. You know, there was an awful lot of continuity there from surprisingly behind the scenes. What was different, of course, was the whole press conference and the spectacle. And Biden is not Trump. In fact, nobody is Trump. So, you know, it was always going to be different from a kind of a Trump-Putin face-off. Alex, what do you think? Given Helsinki, was there any way this wasn't going to be a circus? Uh, in terms of media attention, I, I na- will now refer to people that attend summits as ambulance chasers. I think uh, uh, that I'll, I'll go with that one. It's a good one. I... Uh, Probably not, because the expectation, you know, from either the right or the left on the media would be to, you know, portray this as a failure for Biden, for the left as a, you know, the the stark contrast with the um, clown show that was uh, Helsinki, that ended up being, because I know a lot of hard work went in and it just went off the rails in the presser, but. but So Alex, Fiona Fiona mentions that, that. Helsinki was your first day at work. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to tell us that story. Well, I went in early in the morning like a normal military guy. I mean, I was probably there by like 5.30 or 6. Uh, my first series of onboarding meetings weren't until 7, so I was kind of setting up my office. 
I think the day started okay, and then whenever the the presser landed here on the on the East Coast, it was pretty early in the morning. Uh, my in processing ended pretty abruptly, and then there was just a, a large number of uh, press queries. Fiona was forward and handling some of these, I think, quite a bit of them because they had some of the senior press officers there. But there was plenty of spillover into my lane as a brand new director for Russia on the National Security Council. But I I, I did want to mention that, you know, in a way, a measure of how uh, how successful this icebreaker was is Putin's reaction. I mean, I think it's in a lot of ways unprecedented. You know, some will will try to divine Putin's motivation for being complimentary of Biden. Uh, and say that, you know, he's either trolling him, he's trying to ingratiate him uh, uh, with him to build a relationship. But I think, you know, he he is his own guy. He was very nonchalant and kind of uh, dismissive of things that he or he felt weren't important. But he took the moment to describe uh, Biden as a capable, competent partner in a way that might elevate him because, you know, he's got to be better at what he does and engaging with a superpower. But I think it's also a welcome change from Trump in that Trump was highly unpredictable uh, in, in, a, in the kind of the most uh, negative way where he was erratic and you could have anything happen, whether that's cruise missile strikes on the on bases uh, that are housing Russian forces in Syria, who knows what kind of stuff Trump could do. Whereas Biden is, is more predictable, a grown up, a professional, and you could have kind of a, a, a frank conversation and believe that uh, Biden, what, what Biden says will actually happen. Whereas with Trump, that was not the case. Just because he told you something face to face does not mean that that's what was going to happen behind the scenes. We saw that play out behind the scenes too many times to count on the National Security Council. So I think that's that's kind of a measure also of how well this kind of went off as, as an icebreaker. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 
separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Okay, we have a question from John in the audience for uh, President Ilvis. John asks, the messaging during and after the summit seemed to emphasize ground rules for, for future behavior rather than addressing the past. I'm thinking of Crimea, Georgia, etc., does deterrence work if we just accept the losses yet again? Well, I think the goal, I mean, I'm not in the U.S. administration or even close to it, so I don't know anything about what's going on. But 
I think the point of the, and this is the point of the icebreakers, okay, let's set now the, the agenda. The things we want to discuss are the following. Uh, I mean, the meeting, people said, okay, it was shorter than the potential five hours, but this was not a meeting in which you're going to hash out those issues. That It, I, it took four hours just to enumerate and catalog the list of things that need to be dealt with that have not been dealt with probably since I would say 2015. I mean, because I don't think in 2016 that much was dealt with either in terms of of Russian uh, manipulation and Russia. Oh, I mean, uh, uh, the the hacks of Hillary's um, Hillary Clinton's uh, server or any of those things. I think the issues have not been addressed in six years, and you, that that's accumulated for a long time. And so you say, here are the, these are the things we want to talk about. And clearly, another thing that uh, that uh, that has happened from a U.S. perspective, I would imagine, is that the role of okay, cyber or disinformation, but the the entire digital threat, is far far greater. Now we already know about Ukraine. And that's going to be there anyway. I mean, you didn't even mention Georgia, but what has grown dramatically is this whole the the whole idea of digital digital warfare in one form or another. And so, I mean, clearly, these are the, you're going to say we want to talk about this. I don't think that either side came there to actually come up with positions. Those are that's the kind of thing that. People, I mean, the Sherpas deal with and argue for a long time, and then they get to some kind of point where, yes, this is for the for the leadership, at least on the U.S. side, the democratically elected leadership to then finally sign. But this was not, you're not there, as Fiona said, you could not even have deliverables there. There's nothing to deliver because there was nothing that was accomplished. And it was never set to be that way, I think. I mean, it's too big. The agenda is too big. All right. We have a few questions on Russian domestic politics. Alina Christopher asks, as Putin's Geneva press conference was not just for a U.S. or international audience, but for his Russian constituency, do you share Julia Yaffe's view that Putin was quoting Tolstoy to demonstrate that he is not the uneducated little street urchin and gangster the Russian intelligentsia see him as, but rather as intelligent and well-read. Uh, how, how should we understand his demonstrations of education in, in that context? That's a fantastic question. I love it. Well, look, I think Putin has developed this way of doing high and lowbrow all in one. You know, we often find him doing a lot of lowbrow commentary to you know, appeal to the everyman Russian, right? Um, a lot of his photo ops, you know, hunting, doing whatever uh, supposedly Russian men do is really much devoted to that, cultivating that image. But at the same time, he often, not just at the summit, though I can't try to think, have, have I heard Putin quote Tolstoy before? I don't know, maybe he has, uh, but certainly he also wants to present himself as a worldly cosmopolitan leader, even though he's not, of course, you know, Putin hasn't lived abroad. He has, you know, except if you count his time, you know, in East Germany, in, in working for uh, the KGB, which I wouldn't necessarily call that living abroad at the time. Uh, he, he's really kind of a, a Soviet made man, but wants to present himself as someone, you know, who can 
sit with President Macron, you know, uh, the French intellectual who can shake hands with the of the US president. So I think that was part of the game there. Um, I don't think that was necessarily unique to this moment. Um, I think this is something we've seen Putin play as part of his image making and PR campaign around him in previous years. Uh, but it was an interesting choice. Fiona, you have written a biography of Putin and his image making about himself. What was your reaction to, to his press conference and the shows of education within it? Well, I think Alina's right. I mean, he's trying to appeal to multiple audiences all at the same time. And look, Putin's presented himself right since the very beginning of his presidency as someone who's sort of steeped in Russian culture and literature. It is very Soviet. Tumas and I, in particular, will remember you know the sort of Soviet Union and that kind of educational curriculum. I mean, we met you know kind of way back when in the uh, 1990s, just after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, you know, people at that point, you know, like Putin, had social mobility through education. It was a very standard education. Tolstoy would no doubt have been on the curriculum that he had. I mean, I actually read Tolstoy at school in the United Kingdom, not in Russian, of course, you know, kind of uh, on, on my in my sort of high school uh, curriculum, you know, War and Peace and Anna Karenina and some of uh, Tolstoy's short stories. So, you know, in a way, um, it's not surprising that he was quoting Tolstoy, which is I think what Zelina is suggesting. It would be more surprising if he was, you know, kind of quoting, you know, some other kind of more avant-garde literature that wouldn't have been on the old you know, sort of Soviet uh, curriculum. I mean, I noticed at the press conference as well, just that kind of offhand way he had. I think I mentioned it in one of my media hits. It struck me very jarringly that he was referring to, you know, women journalists as dievushka and I think at one point somebody said when I brought that up that I thought he'd heard Dievushka, which means kind of like a little girl. But Dievushka, when I, you know, having been in my late 50s now, I don't like being called Dievushka or girl. It's like calling you lass in the north of England or something. Uh, you know, the more formal reference would have been Dharma, you know, uh, the lady. And the translator, I noticed, corrected it. The, the, the translator into English said, the lady over here. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, you know, the girl over there, which is now kind of in colloquial Russian is used, you know, for any kind of female now of kind of a certain, any, any age, frankly, up to being quite elderly. But I mean, it's just that kind of Putin mix of sort of informality, colloquialisms. He doesn't really care about anything. He's not going to pay, you know, kind of particular attention to someone unless he really wants to. So it's actually in that context more notable that he's saying kind of polite, somewhat respectful things about Biden. And I've started myself to think about why is he doing that? Because otherwise he was pretty rude about the United States, making ridiculous what about comparisons. But, you know, I've pointed out and probably other people may have pointed this out to him and maybe he's reflected on it himself that Putin is telling us he's going to be president until 2036. He was born in 1952. Do the math. Somewhere along the line to, 19, to 2036, he's going to be 78 as Biden is now. And in fact, in 2036, he's going to be 84 years old. So if he starts making too much fun of Biden now, what's to stop someone saying, oh, hello, Vladimir Vladimirovich, you know, you've just kind of suggested that the president of the United States is senile. Well, you know, kind of you're going to be 84 by the time, you know, you're still our president in 2036. How do you think he's holding up? So actually, you know, by praising Biden, he's praising his future self. 
by saying, look, he's very sharp. You know, he, he um, you know, he's still kind of in command of everything because perhaps he suddenly realized that making those kind of cheap pot shots might come back at him at some point as well. Because there's one thing about Putin, he's very calculated. You know, like Alina is sort of suggesting in the, you know, the quoting of the Tolstoy, it's all meant to kind of make a connection to an audience or to flag a point. And I think Thomas was suggesting this too. He's kind of praising Biden as a way of sort of praising himself. Because if he talks it down too much, then why did he bother showing up, right? You know, kind of, it has to be for both domestic audiences to show he, Putin, still got it. And this was a worthy meeting for him. And also internationally, because like the United States, Putin's also looking over his shoulder at China. And while he's strutting his stuff and, you know, kind of wielding big sticks and saber rattling to the West and, you know, threatening Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania or Belarus or Ukraine or anyone else, he's really got to worry about what the guys in the Far East are thinking. And does China look at Russia and think, yep, worthy, um, not opponent, but worthy partner, or maybe perhaps some prey down the line, either technologically or, you know, perhaps even territorially? And, you know, if the, if the Russians think that the Chinese are not exfiltrating their data already, dream on. Thomas. Yeah, I just want a few things. First of all, I would say if you look at the questions, I mean, I think any uh, any first year KGB uh, school student could have picked out the questions that are going to come from Western journalists. And so those answers were all, I mean, if not, I mean, you don't even need to memorize them. But in any case, I mean, everything from not mentioning Navalny by name, I mean, which is just such, you know, on the on the Tolstoy, possibly Lermontov quote, I don't know. I mean, he had to do something to make him look, yes, philosophical. And I think it was not only for the Soviet or the Russian audience. I think it was also for the West, because basically American presidents never, ever say anything philosophical, or at least not not in the past. 200 years and i mean maybe maybe jefferson did something like that but in any case no that uh is not uh, what it is uh, that makes uh, an american president but i think there were lots of people in the west who said, oh wow you know what a philosophical point and i'm sure he just said that quote ready for you when you get the inevitable dumb question well are you happy with the results and then like what is happiness i mean it's I mean, I think it was, I mean, he knows the questions or his his people know the questions. And so there were answers for them. And the idea was uh, just to make sure he didn't make any missteps. And there would be one or two questions, perhaps, that would be kind of from out in left field, which they couldn't handle, but the rest was all predictable. And I, in that sense, I think he, I mean... You know, he's he as opposed to uh, to the former guy or Biden's predecessor. I mean, he I mean, he's very predictable. And you uh, I mean, when he doesn't answer in the standard way, when he if he would have actually said Navalny, use the name people in Russia. Whoa, look at him. He goes abroad and actually mentions Navalny by name. I mean, so it was just the standard scripted thing. I think that, again. If you've been following this character for, I mean, I've been since the Ryazan bombings when he was still prime minister, there are, were no surprises there. And I think that uh, sort of the, a lot of the uh, easy psychological analysis of what Putin is about is done by people who have not really been following him 
and it's rather people like Fiona who have been doing this for, I mean, I have Fiona and Gaddy's books since, I don't know what year, 15 years ago, right? I mean, this is, people know this guy and from knowing him, it was not anything surprising, uh, but he did a good job from that perspective. No rubbing out in the, in the shithouse on his part. No hanging Shakashvili by his testicles nailed to the ceiling, which is another quote of his. I mean, this is a step up, right? You know? <laughs> All right. So Joyce asks a question that a lot of people are have wondered about in the chat, which is, and I'm not sure who the right person to direct it is. So if you know the answer, just raise your hand. How much of the confrontational engagement with the Western press did the Russian public see, particularly the engagement with the reporter who asked him, you know, what are you afraid of? And why do so many people who criticize you end up dead? Is that something that we should assume was covered live on Russian television? Do we know what any domestic reaction to that stuff looks like? Quick comment. I, I, I don't know if it was covered live. I didn't watch the, the presser on Russian TV. I would be surprised if it wasn't. Uh, as Thomas said, none of these questions that Putin got were surprises. You know, he's, he's been here before. He said these things before. But I think the, what I've seen in terms of the Russian state-controlled media and their message on this has been, you know, the following one, as the spin, I should say, is that, you know, Putin got to go first. So he set the agenda and forced Biden to respond to him because Biden went second. Uh, Putin was uh, very confident, cheery, enjoyed himself and good health, whereas Biden looked tired and, you know, old, all this kind of stuff. I do think it's interesting that Putin just came from Sochi, where he was probably taking a nice rest. I looked like he was very refreshed with some nice fillers as well. But I think it was covered, you know, to, to give Putin the upper hand, saying that he really set the agenda here. He looked healthy and good and, and, and virile, and uh, Biden had, was forced to respond to him at, at the very end. Yeah, this is actually a, a very important point that always gets missed that Alina's just made, which is the unfair advantage, honestly, for any leader um, having to meet with Putin somewhere in Europe. It's a hop, skip and a jump for the Russian presidential plane to get to somewhere like Geneva. I mean, it was smart on the part of the Biden team to have it towards the end of the meeting where they've somewhat acclimatized to um, the um, time difference. But just think about how little sleep Biden and the team have had. I mean, I'm feeling tired just thinking about it because, you know, Alex and I have you know, had to do this before. And when Thomas, you know, you've had to come, you know, in the opposite direction to the United States, you have to face with this. And I was, I've always been thinking about, you know, kind of how nuts it is <laughs> for us to have these meetings um, where people can make these very unfair comparisons, but not just about age, but about, you know, your relativeness of being well rested. In they places should all that be in Iceland. Else. Yeah, well, that's all what I was summits say should be in Reykjavik. Yeah. In but, but I can tell you that having seen Putin in Osaka, when Putin had to kind of come to Japan, you know, for the, the G20, he looked like crap. He looked like me right now, frankly, you know, because I haven't slept very well last night, you know, and he had a slight cold and he was out of sorts. And we actually wondered whether, you know, kind of he would, you know, be able to at one point continue the meeting because he had a, he obviously had a cold and a head cold. So, you know, he was obviously, as Alina was suggesting, wouldn't it, it might be surprised if he went to the spa and, you know, had a kind of a makeover and, you know, kind of was just sort of all freshly laundered because he didn't have very far to come and he had one thing to do. 
So just saying to everybody there, think about that for a moment before we start harping on about, you know, any Western leader, that US leader who has to kind of go off to these things. They have a punishing, grueling schedule. They don't have a lot of sleep. And then they have to be on their best game. I'd be incoherent, you know, by the time you got to the press conference. Super interesting point. Alina, you wanted, you had a different point you wanted to make. I think there's, there were two really interesting moments, actually, in the, in, the, in the pressers that we haven't quite talked about which kind of revealed in these underhanded ways what may have happened in the private closed-door discussion. And I thought it was really interesting from both sides. One was Putin's mention of Biden retelling stories about his mother, uh, which was a straight, you know, this was like a typical kind of KGB move to talk about someone's you know, family and to reveal, like, I know things about your family. You told me things in private that I know about you, and I'm going to reveal that now in front of the public. I know Biden was uh, thought that was odd, and I think he even mentioned it. Um, and then I thought it was interesting that Biden made this really interesting, almost like gangster-style remark about cyber attacks and critical infrastructure, and especially pipelines. You know, where he said, "Well, I, I, I talked to Mr. Putin, and I said, uh, you know, about the colonial uh, pipeline hack that we had. Well, how, how do you think it would affect you if your pipeline started getting hacked?" And I just thought that was a really interesting comment from uh, Biden. And in fact, I actually think it was very, very smart. And I wonder to what extent these kinds of, I'm not saying this is the right move. If, if we get attacked at a critical infrastructure system that we should do a tit for tat, absolutely do nothing that will lead to a good outcome. But I thought that was an interesting underhanded threat by Biden. And I think given Putin's view of the world, it probably went right in here. Nice Nord Stream 2 you got there. Be a shame if something were to happen to it. Um, This actually transitions us very nicely to uh, the cyber question, which uh, Yako has posed. Alex, how would we know over the next few months if this set of communications were effective, if it's designed to send a, a message, hey, you know, looking forward, not backward, but you cannot do this stuff. How do you measure whether this is an effective communication of of expectations? Sure. So first, let me say that the the agenda of old business is not cleared off. I mean, Ukraine will be a a perpetual topic. Uh, All of these these things that have been on the agenda for uh, every other meeting will, will stay on there. We now, you know, some of them are being shuffled around like cyber is now higher on the agenda than it may have been in the past. In reality, Putin is is very likely to continue to test the U.S. resolve. There has been a track record of uh, even longer than uh, Trump and, uh, f- the four years of the Trump administration of uh, getting away with things, uh, acting with impunity and emboldening uh, greater aggression on the part of Russia uh, that has not received adequate response. So uh, I think Putin will certainly test the, test the resolve of this administration, uh, what was communicated uh, to him by Biden. And in those moments, the mo- most important thing uh, that will kind of baseline the relationship moving forward is, frankly, what the United States does in response. And if the United States follows through and forces, uh, for lack of a better word uh, at, the, at the moment, red lines, uh, then Putin will know that we're that the United States is serious, and that will serve to baseline Putin moving forward and kind of enable this this whole.
theory about deterrence and and kind of the idea being that you know he will now he he has higher costs he may not achieve all the benefits so potentially pursue some of these actions now that's not going to be the true true in all cases but in certain cases that's that will be true so that's one one facet uh what's also important to realize is those are the moments that are most dangerous also and that's why we have all these other dialogues the deconfliction cell the necessity probably for the uh, Secretary of Defense to talk to the Minister of Defense, because in those moments where there's a mismatch between expectations, we'll get away with it like we have for you know the pa- past decade. In the reality, there's a consequence. There's a, a potential of risk of escalation, and that escalation could cause some difficult issues, especially if it ends up being in the military sphere. So I think those are the. the this is probably the, you know the kind of the the theoretical uh, next steps that are are likely to unfold. But again, it's less about what Russia is going to do. They're going to do what they have been doing. It's more about what the United States does in this next turn of the bilateral relationship. Just to point out, almost exactly at the time of the meeting, U.S. jets in Hawaii, F-22s, had to scramble to go after long-range, Russian long-range bombers approaching Hawaii. I mean, this is the kind of crap, excuse me, that that often happens is that you're having a meeting, all the attention is there, but just to show you that, you know, we're still around and we can still do stuff, you put up, a, you have bombers flying all the way across the Pacific, a lot farther away from, uh, from Hawaii than Hawaii is from the U.S. And of course, the U.S. scrambles. And I mean, this is... This is the kind of behavior they engage in. So when when Alex says they're testing, they're doing this 24-7 to see what what will the response be. And and so, uh, yeah, I I anticipate that we're going to have in uh, we're going to have a bunch of uh, episodes that will be probing, see what the response will be. Some of it will be kinetic, maybe in Ukraine. Some of it will be diplomatic and some kind of statements. And some of it will be in uh, the digital domain. I mean, we'll see. We have five minutes left, but I would be remiss if there were two questions I did not come back to. The first is for Fiona. You mentioned earlier that there was an issue of prisoner exchange raised. And, uh, you know, we have a couple of businessmen who are being held, what are the prospects for getting them back? And uh, what would we have to give up in order to to do it? Well, I was actually, when I was raising my hand there, it's exactly as Timus uh, has just said about the long range bombers on their way over uh, to Hawaii, that the Russians want to always show that they have leverage, they have the ability to you know, get into our space, literally into um, our airspace, and that they always, you know, kind of have something else that they can do. So another thing around the summit, and this was just brought to my attention, in fact, today, Putin and Biden talked about prisoners. I mean, it's also kind of an interesting, you know, kind of use of terms as well, right? As if these were sort of prisoners of war. Because, you know, we have um, an American businessman who... Um, yeah, they're Biden hostages, is I think the better, the better term for it. And, and there's a massive asymmetry in, you know, the people who are sitting in jails in, in the United States are actually carrying out pretty serious crimes. 
In one case, um, Yaroshenko, a pilot uh, who was engaged in you know massive drug smuggling and has been in U.S. jail for some time, and then Victor Boot, you know the infamous arms uh, merchant of death, you know that Nicolas Cage played in a Hollywood movie. And you know, on the on the Russian side, there is a businessman who I think he would prefer we don't use his name. He's been under um, house arrest and has been trying to sort of extricate him, himself from that, including from some with some Russian business partners who has been predated upon by Russian business rivals who want to take his assets. Very similar to patterns we've seen in the past. And then there are two American citizens. Trevor Reed, former Marine, and also a fellow Marine, who have been, um, you know, basically in one case um, arrested on drunk and disorderly charge, which, you know, kind of seems to have got remarkably out of hand. This is in the case of Trevor Reed. And then Paul Whelan, who has been um, arrested on very, pretty much trumped up and highly fabricated espionage charges. And just recently, there has been, uh, in the last day, Another American citizen, Russian-born, working in St. Petersburg, who has just been sentenced to four years in a penal colony for um, ostensibly bribing an official. Now, how interesting that that charge was just passed in the last day, because the um, ability to move forward with that case was apparently, because I looked this up after it was brought to my attention, got dates back to February of 2020. So what this looks like is the Russians collecting cards. So just to play. So just as Chumas is saying, you know, as they're meeting, they get the dramatic act of the bombers uh, forcing everyone to scramble off Hawaii and everyone's thinking, wow, Hawaii, they can get that far? That was the point. In this case, it's now a collection of prisoners to trade. It's, it's trading cards and they want Victor Boot. They like Yaroshenko as well, but they want to get Victor Boot. And look at the asymmetry of this. So they know this is going to be extraordinarily difficult. They've been blunt about this with Victor Boot. It goes back to when Alex and I were there too. They've made it very, very clear um, because Victor Boot is a massive liability. It's a very high profile. It's an embarrassment, you know, that he's there. And so this is going to be a very difficult issue for us to resolve because, you know, first of all, we don't want to be trading people. Uh, particularly, you know, um, Paul Whelan and Trevor Reed, who, you know, were in the wrong place at the wrong time, an American businessman who's been one of the longest serving investors in Russia. But overall, this is a, a massive chill on anybody like any of us um, here or anybody listening. I would just say, don't go to Russia. Don't go as a tourist. Don't go as a business person. And especially if you've been in the Marines. So that was a point that we kept saying to, to the Russians, you know, you're wanting to boost tourism. You're wanting to boost foreign direct investment. Why are you doing this? Well, it's obvious because they want to trade American citizens and others for, you know, high worth individuals for themselves. Last question is for Tomas. Um, you have been, uh, you're the one person in this uh, conversation who has been a head of state and had a meeting with Putin in your capacity as a president. What's he like to sit down at, at a table with and have a conversation with, how different is he from the persona that he projects when he stands in front of that microphone? How bad is it? Well, to be, uh, to be honest, my long meetings were with his, uh, his erstwhile president, the fake president, Dmitry Medvedev. And so he was the one I had a lot of time with, and he was actually quite personable. The short encounters with Putin I mean, you know, we're we're Estonia. I mean, we are such a little puny speck, and we don't count at all. You know, we're called the sm swamp people. That's how they call the 
Estonians and the Finns and the so what I did want to point out is that in fact at the last summit it, this whole idea of exchange came up when it actually went so far as offering Mike McFall in exchange for I don't know who, for whom but in any case this idea about you give us McFall and we'll give you who I don't I don't recall but this is this is a weird thing and we've gone through it in Estonia where they actually came into Estonia lured someone to get near the border kidnap an Estonian the FBI guy whose main thing is doing doing corruption and drug smuggling and was investigating smuggling they came across the border and kidnapped the guy and then the whole point was in order to get an exchange with a real agent not a i mean an actual employee an officer of the uh, FSB rather than uh, some guy who was bought off to sell secrets but they go they they defend they they don't leave theirs out there if they get in trouble and so they in order to get an exchange they actually went and kidnapped some so this is a fundamental thing that you have to understand that if you know if they if one of theirs gets arrested they'll move uh, mountains to get him or her out we are going to leave it there Tomas Elvis Alina Polyakova Alex Finman Fiona Hill thank you all for joining us today The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineers this episode were Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo and Bryce Clem of Lawfare. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast on all the socials, so get on it, folks. You need to leave us a rating and review. You need to buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>